This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about settlement solutions, litigation, mediation, and structured financial security from Ringler, the largest and most experienced company of settlement consultants in the United States. Ringler has been helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by American General, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm your host Larry Cohen and we're certainly glad you could join us today. Well, the workers' comp industry has an extremely rich history. But as we've witnessed changes in the marketplace, changes in the workplace, and the way workers performed, we're also seeing changes in the way workers' comp rules are being challenged and are being administered in new ways. Like with most paradigm shifts, the workers' comp community is trying to adjust to the changing times. So today we'll explore the subject and see what's in store for the industry. And to do that, we have a special guest. Alan Pierce, one of the true authorities in workers' compensation, is from the firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. Alan's also the host of the Legal Talk Network podcast, Workers' Comp Matters. That's a great show, Alan. Uh, I've listened to it many times, and I want to welcome you back to Ringler Radio, Alan. Great to have thank you. you here. Yeah, thank you, Larry. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank Alan, you, for you those, know, Thank you for those kind words as well. Well, no, it's, it's a great show. You know, you've written extensively, Alan, about workers' comp history, and you've stated that workers' comp is now in its, quote, third era, unquote. Tell us what you mean by that and what the future seems to hold for those working in the workers' comp arena. Okay, yeah. um, I would modify that question that I think we're in the third era uh, in the last 40 or 50 years, and uh, the demarcation line would be 1972. And so maybe if I gave you a little quick history as to how we got to 1972. I love history. Go ahead. Yeah, all right. Well, um, workers' comp came into existence in the United States officially in 1911, 108 or so years ago. Mm-hmm. And it followed um, a path, uh, the modern path of a um, government set up system of uh, compulsory insurance uh, for workplace injuries started in Europe, uh, in Prussia, Germany, in the latter half of the 19th century. But if you really want to go back, you can find some historical antecedents for our current workers' comp system back in days of of, uh, the pirates or the privateers with Captain Henry Morgan. You can even go back into the biblical times and, and various codes and tablets I know, I know, I know a lot about Captain Morgan. Yeah, well, that, that's the rum. <laughs> oh, that's you the know rum. <laughs> that, that in order to serve on one of his ships, you had a contract that specified that if you lost uh, uh, a hand or an arm or a leg or an eye, and we can all picture those pirates with the hook of the peg leg of the eye patch, sure. that, that their families or the, the pirate or the privateer himself would share in the plunder uh, by a certain designated amount. It's a scheduled benefit, not unlike what we have here, <laughs> right. where there were so many pieces of eight or the equivalent in uh, monetary terms, uh, depending on what you lost. And the major hand was worth more than the minor hand. And this was four or 500 years ago, and we still have that principle today. So workers' comp 
a, a system of the employer somehow being financially responsible for the losses suffered by his or her worker in the performance of the duties that allow that employer to make a profit is sort of the underpinnings of our modern workers' comp system. So because of the changes of economy from an agrarian economy to a uh, a mechanized uh, industrial revolution-based economy in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it became clear there were thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of injuries and deaths occurring every year, leaving the families of these folks essentially destitute. There was, the only recourse would be to sue the employer. Very difficult. There were a lot of roadblocks. So workers' comp was set up in 1911. It became pretty much universal over the first couple of decades into the 20s. It became compulsory during that time. And it it evolved through case law and um, changes through the 40s and into the 50s and into the 60s. But it was kind of stuck in an era where the benefits really were too low for a mid-20th century economy. Hence, in 1970, as part of uh, Richard Nixon's election as as president in 1968, uh, he uh, signed into law the OSHA Act of 1970, the Occupational Safety and Health Act. And among its provisions, not only guaranteeing federal government oversight of safety in the in the workplace, they established what's now known as the 1972 National Commission on State Workmen's Compensation Laws. Mm-hmm. And it was a blue-ribbon panel of 15 uh, members from across the spectrum, workers, labor, management, insurers. And two years later, they issued a report that basically said that the system of workers' comp and the delivery of those benefits in 1972 were inadequate. And they came up with dozens of recommendations, but approximately 19 recommendations, they said, were essential for the states to enact. And the threat would be perhaps a federal takeover of workers' comp. So in 1972, that is what I would consider the first, the beginning of the first era of our current workers' comp. So from 1972 into the 80s, probably up to the late 80s or 1990 or so, we saw state by state by state the implementation of these 19 essential recommendations. Not every state enacted uh, or implemented all of the recommendations, but most of the states enacted many of the recommendations. Well, and, and, I, and I think part of that was to avoid a federal a federalization of the program, right? I mean, states, the state commissioners and the states wanted to keep control and realize that each of their citizens has a little bit different perspective on, on what what's fair than, than a federal program. Isn't That's that- correct. And the commission also recognized that what's fair in one state may not be sure. you know, the same in the other. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's true. I mean, you have the federal government overseeing basically a 50-state, 50, 50 multi-jurisdictions, each having their own approach. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they set forth general guidelines and general principles. But you're right, Larry. The threat was, hey, we'll fold this into medic- Social Security, we'll fold it into Medicare, and we'll take the casualty insurance industry out of it. We'll, you know, we'll take private insurance out of it. And um, that made, that made that. everybody shudder and start doing the right thing, right? That's correct. So era number one was the implementation uh, of these changes, most of which were beneficial to injured workers. Um, they raised uh, benefit levels. They talked about permanent partial disability. Um, universal coverage. I won't go through the whole list, but they were primarily uh, 
benefited injured workers. So the practical effect was that from the 1980s until probably the 1990s, in a short period of time, you were the industry was correcting uh, a system that had languished and had been um, not terribly uh, fair for decades before that. So there was an infusion of more money going into workers' comp, which translated to more costs. Premiums started to escalate. And around the same time, coincidental to this and not as a result of this, we started to have the, the problems we're facing now with, with the health insurance system generally. The costs of medical care and hospital care and prescription drugs started to to become more expensive across the board. So when you factored the medical costs along with the indemnity costs in, all of a sudden, it was perhaps too much too soon. And one thing we've learned in workers' comp is when the system is out of balance, and it's almost always out of balance, mm -hmm. uh, it typically reaches a, a tipping point where there needs to be a correction. And historically, the correction has always been an overcorrection. And I right. think from my perspective as a claimant's attorney, that's what that's era number two that started in the 1990s and is continuing really up to today. The overcorrection has now been a piece-by-piece reduction in workers' right. comp benefits over the last 10 or 20 well, years. Well, it's because, as you know, as you as you said, as you stated, the employers all of a sudden started seeing the costs go up significantly. And, you know, through their associations and their lobbying efforts, they they wanted to make that correction and they were able to do that, but perhaps overcorrected. And now we're we're kind of swinging. Now we need to swing back the other way. I, I, I see what's happening and uh, it keeps you busy, I'm sure. Well, it keeps us busy and it keeps us frustrated because all changes in workers' comp, uh, are e they either occur in two different ways. Uh, they occur legislatively, and that is a political-inspired mm -hmm. um, change. Somebody has to have the muscle uh, to go to the legislature or the executive branch and the governor uh, to enact changes. Or judicially, um, right? Through, or through the course. second option is judicially. And now that we're in the third era that I think began maybe within the last five or ten years, we're seeing two things. We're seeing legislatures reluctant to act again. They've acted in the 80s to broaden workers' comp. They've acted in the 90s to, um, and I'm, I'm being simplistic here, to cut workers' comp back. And there doesn't seem to be the will in the legislature to sort of get into workers' comp again. Mm -hmm. What's happening that I've seen is that in the states where the cuts and uh, benefit levels have been trimmed to the degree that they have, uh, people are now resorting to the judicial system. Mm -hmm. And we've started to see actual constitutional challenges to a state's workers' comp system as no longer being constitutionally um, supportive. Uh, when workers' comp was first um, deemed to be constitutional in 1917 by the Supreme Court, the court said in, in, the, in the landmark case of um, New York Central Railroad versus White that a workers' comp system had to be reasonable. In fact, what they said, it could not be unreasonable. Why they chose a double negative, uh, because they've been cited now for the last hundred years. Uh, but the question is, what is or isn't reasonable is to some degree subjective. But now we've started to have courts weigh in on that. And, um, for example, just about a year ago, uh, the state of Kansas, um, the Supreme Court, actually the appeals court in Kansas, looked at what they called, and I'm just going to quote, the general, er the gradual erosion of benefits uh, for the injured worker 
and this is the language of the, the, the justices, amounted to a death by a thousand paper cuts. What is that last slice, they say, that tips the balance from a fair exchange of rights and remedies to one that is unconstitutionally inadequate from the injured worker's point of view? And they went on to answer that question in the, in the case of Howard Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, they said the Kansas statute, and they went through all of the reductions over the several years, basically was the thousandth cut. And they basically said that the Kansas statute no longer was an equitable, it was now an unreasonable remedy for an injured worker who had his or her tort rights taken away by the so-called grand bargain. Well, you know you know what that says. It says that we've reached that tipping point again where the courts are now serving as that that entity that's trying to tip it in the right direction. So you're 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 right. I mean, we've gone from the 70s through the 90s back and forth and into to today, but let's let's fast forward a little bit more toward today and what we're seeing is technology changing the nature of labor itself and exactly. you know, it's, it's disrupting the workplace we're going we're going to see a lot of robots we're, we're seeing people work from home uh, so how does that affect the world of workers comp how do you see that uh, moving well um, and you raise a, a really I think what is at the heart of this discussion and and this discussion by nature of, of time as well as perhaps my lack of expertise in all of these areas uh, I can tell you has been the subject of panels and writings and um, uh, the thinkers actually dealing with this. And you're right. The, econ- the, the nature of work, the nature of economy in the 21st century and, the, and our population is so much different than it was 100 years ago. Our labor force is different. We don't have the strength of organized labor. So much, so many less people are covered under collective bargaining agreements. And we have the millennial generation, X generation, Y um, type of employees, these younger, where everybody's younger than me now, but the, <laughs> the, the younger workers in the 20s and 30s, the traditional employer-employee relationship where you show up, you, you work nine to five and you punch a time clock, those days for the most part are gone. Mm-hmm. It used to be pretty easy to determine who's an employee and who's not an employee. Um, who's right. an independent contractor? Who's not? Now we and when have, you're and when you're on a frolic and when you're not, right? Exactly. When you're on a frolic and a detour, when you're not. Well, when you're working from home, it's very interesting. I've had people say they're working from home, yet they're they walk outside, take a walk in the in the lawn, and they fall, fall on the on the on the the, the pipe or something, and uh, and who knows whether they were working or not working? Right. We, we we have first of all um, more machines doing manual labor. Uh, we have less people lifting that barge and toting that bale, but we still have, obviously, people doing laborious work. Uh, we have more of a service economy. We have people that are doing uh, repetitive, uh, lighter work, but more repetitive. So we're seeing different types of injuries. We're seeing repetitive stress and strain injuries. And we're seeing a workforce that it's hard to say who they work for. If you drive an Uber or you drive a Lyft or you work for any of these other kind of organizations where you make your own hours or maybe you use your own vehicle or you use your own, you do it from home or uh, it's not clear who is or who isn't responsible for your injury. So that, uh, and statistics are showing that I think within the next 10 or 20 years, we could have half the workforce uh, working in these sort of untraditional, well, I guess they become traditional, but certainly not the classic employer-employee relationship. So how does workers' comp deal with those injuries. Well, we're going to, we're going to, you know what, Alan, we're going to take a break and talk about the, because Uber and Lyft and some of those independent contractor type scenarios and what we're seeing with 
the potential for driverless cars. That is really one of the most interesting areas to talk about. So let's take a quick break, and we'll come right back and and start talking about all that because I think it's going to be very interesting. Thanks a lot. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio, brought to you from Ringler, the nation's leading provider of fair settlement solutions. Did you know that Ringler is involved in a third of all structured settlement cases in the country? Ringler advisors work with all the parties in a lawsuit settlement to find the best possible financial solution for the people involved. Everybody wins. There's a Ringler consultant in all the major cities of the U.S. No one has more experienced experts in the settlement business than Ringler. Check out our website at www.ringlerassociates.com for the best information for injured parties, attorneys, and claims professionals to find the Ringler advisor nearest you. When it's your interest at stake in a lawsuit settlement, you want only the best, most objective financial plan. You can count on Ringler Advisors to create a customized plan that meets the financial needs of you and your family for the future. Visit RinglerAssociates.com to learn more. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and we're here today with our special guest, Attorney Alan Pierce from Salem, Massachusetts, one of the uh, areas and the industries. Uh, true experts in the workers' comp field. And we've been discussing workers' compensation history and litigation and, and how changes are, are being made constantly to this paradigm of workers' comp where there's tipping points where employers feel set upon and then the employees do, and we're going back and forth. And to cover all that with an umbrella, now we have the changing technology and the changing paradigm of how work is performed and how the millennials are changing how that's done with a lot of the work at home and uh, other automated scenarios. So it's a fascinating area. And Alan, I, I want to talk to you about something that a lot of our our listeners w- would be would find interesting because they're very involved in that. And that's dealing with Uber and Lyft and some of these some of these companies like that where the drivers use their own vehicles and they work on their own time and it, it's different than a than a taxi cab where he's where someone is is working for a taxi cab company and is is coming in and out and and has an employer and a workers comp program behind it how is the Uber Lyft model changing the workers comp arena well it, it's uh, like trying to fit an oval peg into a round hole. Uh, a driver uh, working, and I even have to kind of choose the words carefully, if you're working for Lyft or you're working for Uber uh, and not working, for, you're both working for yourself and working for Uber. But the def- the nature of that relationship is not the traditional employee-employer relationship and the tests the common law and or statutory tests for who is an independent contractor versus who is an employee don't really fit. Um, it used to be a lot easier. never was perfectly easy. But it was all easy to tell who's an independent contractor and who's an employee. You know, the exercise of the right of control, the method and manner of payment, uh, what was the understanding between the parties, the equipment that was being provided, etc. Now you have a hybrid situation where 
I don't think in any jurisdiction it is completely agreed that drivers uh, for any of these companies are considered employees. People are trying to bring claims, and they're usually being denied because they don't satisfy the employer-employee test. So uh, except for perhaps there may be some idiosyncratic cases where a judge or an industrial accident board um, adjudicator may decide that a claim may be compensable. I think the general statement is that these are not yet considered workers' comp cases to be right now generally correct. So how is how are employee well how are the uh, drivers, the, drivers and how is yeah. the company dealing with this? There's two ways. One, they're not doing anything, and the uh, employee is uh, the driver is at his or her own risk and probably needs to make sure his auto carrier is aware he's using it for business purpose because he may not even be entitled to medical payments payments or or, or wage benefits. Or uh, they are um, uh, trying to allow the driver to purchase a workers' comp policy and pay it out of the proceeds of, of the earnings. Or there are plans to try to create another type of insurance a, a sort of an occupational injury coverage where if you are driving for Uber or Lyft and you get injured, you will have a, a, a scheme of benefits available to you through insurance, but it's not under the workers' comp system. And the ones that I've seen, they might have a dollar limit for wage loss and certainly a dollar limit for medical expense. And they are, not, they are outside of the workers' comp system, so they are carving out um, another perhaps insurance model to compensate these folks uh, in the event of an injury. Well, Alan, are are you seeing in any way a measure of organizing the drivers in some kind of a, a, a labor scenario or a unionization scenario where where the company will be able to grant a benefit to everybody, or is everybody on their own? You know, from what I've seen, that, that may be going on in certain jurisdictions. I, I have not seen anything on a national scope. Um, I think, you know, some, some uh, commentators... Uh, such as Emily Spieler, who wrote a, uh, an excellent overview of, of workers' comp uh, in the Rutgers Law Journal last year. Uh, one of the points she made was a careful reevaluation of the definition of employee is needed, uh, so that perhaps uh, through the legislative process and the existing workers' comp system, you can amend the definition section to include workers in the so-called gig economy and and designate them as employees specifically within the workers compact now there has to be a political will to do that and there has to be uh if this is being proposed by those of us who tend to lean toward the injured workers side of things um we would need to have the necessary political clout to be able to make a persuasive case to well, a legislature no, no, to no do question that. about that no question about that you know let me move for a second. Your son Judson, who's uh, doing a great job, he's hosting a, a workers' comp podcast, uh, and he did one recently with attorney Ryan Ben Harris mm-hmm. on the cutback generation, really the millennial generation, and uh, they're they're really expected to be you know in control as we move forward, and a lot of them are working for themselves, entrepreneurs. Uh, and what we talked about before, the the different paradigm of how people are working and, and what they're doing. And how is the workers' comp 
going to keep up with the millennial generation? Uh, and that, that is the, the key question, and that's one of the reasons I did not do that podcast. I wasn't sure if I knew what questions to ask Ryan. So you sicked your son on I it, sick, huh? I sicked my son on oh, him. Oh, there you go. Uh, but but uh, I did listen to that podcast. I listened to it uh, again in preparation for today. And um, you're right. Uh, Ryan had a lot of facts and figures about the, the growth uh, in the workforce, and you don't have to be a statistician to know that us baby boomers are now pretty much retire, retiring out of uh, the workforce, and we are being replaced by um, the, this younger generation that uh, has a different concept of, of working. And the other issue is, aside from the fact that I think Ryan indicated that uh, they can expect 42 million workers to be within that type of workforce in the not-too-distant future, the other thing that we have to consider is people that are employed in that fashion, that is often not their only means of earning money. They may uh, drive for Uber. They may work at the same time doing something else for somebody else. They may have two, three, or four other gigs, and that's why they call it the gig economy. It's a jazz term for musicians going from uh, you know gig to gig. Uh, that they, you know their their weekly paycheck may not be coming just from one single source. And what do you do if you do get an injury? Injury driving for Uber and your weekly take there may be $400 or $500 a week, but you might be making $1,500 a week combined with other uh, types of money-making activities you're doing. How does workers' comp adequately um, um, protect your loss of earnings as a result of a serious injury while working for one of these entities? So, yeah, we have uh, challenges ahead. One of the reasons workers' comp has lasted 100-plus years is it has been relatively elastic, it has adapted to change, albeit slowly, and albeit when they do adapt, sometimes you have to adapt to the adaptation. Mm-hmm. But it's managed to somehow at least fulfill its mission for the last hundred or so years. It's a real big question as to whether we would be having this conversation 20 or 30 years from now. That's interesting in its own right. That that, that sounds like another show coming on with that. Yeah. Uh, we'll, and the we'll... one thing we haven't touched on, mm-hmm. which is also a major driver in this discussion, is the health care issue. We are seeing now in the political, national political stage, uh, the big issue going into the 2020 presidential election, and obviously we've seen it in the congressional elections, is universal health care, health care for all, Medicare for all. Right now we have a tripartite Healthcare system. We've got the workers' comp that pays for the work-related injury. We have alternative group health insurance that pays for the non-work-related injury, and oftentimes those lines are blurred. And then we have people who are not insured at all. And until we have a cohesive and coherent national healthcare policy, uh, it's very difficult to try to improve the workers' comp system around that. Well, we may be waiting a quite a long time for rational health system in this country. <laughs> I, I wouldn't hold my breath, you know what I mean? It's a lot of, lot of political talk, but we'll see if uh, something really comes of it that'll help all of us uh, move forward. Exactly. So, so in closing, let's, let's look ahead a little bit. You know, obviously Ringler is a structured settlement company, and, and we do a lot of workers' comp cases where we structure those cases. How do you see the future uh, of the things you've been mentioning impacting how we use structured settlements in workers' comp? Um, I think that some of the proposals that are now being put forth to uh, change workers' comp uh, might eliminate even the concept of settlement of cases. Uh, We're starting to see uh, movements toward an alternative system uh, to workers' comp. Uh, There was a recent 
foray into that in Oklahoma um, a few years ago, the so-called opt-out system where the uh, state of Oklahoma allowed large employers to create their own workers' comp um, system outside of the traditional insurance-based system and administer it themselves. That was subsequently found to be unconstitutional, but I don't think uh, the, the day is gone that we won't see another iteration of a type of employer benefit plan that will replace or um, be different than the current workers' comp system, and that may not even allow for the parties to lump some settled case. I look at, for example, long-term disability insurance. Um, frankly, you're either on it or you're not on it. Yeah. And um, and social security disability, you're either on it or you're not on it. You know, well, I'm sure, I'm sure when when the legislators sit down and talk about these issues, they're concerned about lump sums being dissipated and and really losing the whole effect and impact of what workers' comp is really supposed to be, which is kind mm-hmm. of an ongoing payment system, the, the the ability for a structured settlement to step in and, and continue that periodic payment process, uh, that would be a real loss if, uh, if for oh, some reason that happened. You know? I agree. I mean, in defense of the lump sum system, that eliminates the risk Yes. or it mitigates the risk because in workers' comp, um, there are issues as to how long you can collect, how much you can collect. You have life expectancy right. issues. You have all sorts of compensability issues and settlements have been allowed, and and every, all parties in, like to see them, uh, insurers as well as injured workers, because it does, in exchange for giving up your rights, you get something in return. Well, you know, I see, in that light, I see structured settlements as being a tremendous benefit as the discussions take place. That And that voice of, of what structured settlements can do for a lump sum type settlement process uh, needs to be voiced in order for the folks who are making those decisions to really understand the full ramifications of it. Mm -hmm. And just before we close, going full circle, the reason why I have been speaking out about the history of workers' comp is as those of us who are going to be dealing with these changes and how to effectuate these changes, make sure that they're fair, I think all of us, whether we're regulators, uh, um, legislators, uh, or other stakeholders in the system, I think we need to have an appreciation of the fundamental basic tenants of workers' comp, why workers' comp is different than traditional other types of insurance, such as long or short-term disability or Medicare or or any other type of insurances. It is rooted in a, I would say, a moral, if not ethical, if not religious concept of an obligation of the provider of services to um, an employer that that employer has a duty uh, to fairly um, take care of that person when they're hurt in the performance of, of those duties. And and unless you appreciate uh, the, why workers' comp is different, mm-hmm. you can get sucked into just letting workers' comp be just another type of employer benefit plan. And that is, you know, to my uh, dying day as, as a practitioner of, of workers' comp, I would hate to see it um, treated that way. I think it, right. it injured workers are owed and own their right uh, to workers' comp. Well, you, you know, you're bringing up a, an excellent point, which is that a lot of people, th- they lose sight of their history and the history of certain things they're trying to change. And without that background and that, that you know, the baseline of, of what they're trying to do, sometimes they make decisions that aren't necessarily the best. So that's, that's why I value uh, folks like you know, people who lobby for the various points of view to the to the people in Congress who are so busy that they can't 
grab their hands around some of these issues. And, and it's those conversations, those committee meetings, et cetera, where a lot of this is going to be hashed out, and I hope all the voices are heard. So with that, I'll say uh, it's been great having you on the show, Alan. This has been quite a history lesson here. Uh, and if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, uh, how would they do that? Uh, www.ppnlaw.com. Peter, Paul, Nancy, or Pierce, Pierce, Napolitano. ppnlaw.com. And uh, we're have a website and you can reach us there. Super, super. And uh, for all you out there, you can always reach and hear all the Ringler Radio shows on ringlerassociates.com, ringlerradio.com, legaltalknetwork.com, or in iTunes where you can go and download at your leisure and listen uh, as you wish. Uh, in the meantime, I want to say that uh, if you go to ringlerassociates.com, you'll also be able to see all the Ringler Associates around the country to be able to help you with any structured settlement scenario. And also, of course, there's a lot of great information on the site as well about other issues in the claim and legal uh, arena. So with that, I'll say thanks again, Alan, for being a great guest. Thank you, Larry. Look forward to listening to your show. I listen to them all the time. They're great shows. Terrific. And for all the rest of you out there, I like if you listen too, but I'll go out there and have a great day. Bye-bye. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio, celebrating more than a decade of podcasting and over 2 million listeners. Think of Ringler, the objective settlement advisors with more than 140 consultants in 60 cities nationwide. Visit ringlerassociates.com today.